You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 10th of July 2021 on Monocle 24. Hello, it's Emma Nelson here broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half hour, Vincent McAvinney joins me to go through the day's front pages. Welcome, Vinny. What have you found today? Good morning. Well, we'll be talking the UK's Freedom Day. There's an update coming on that. We'll also be talking about the impact of that DD listing in New York and what it's done to Chinese companies. A bit about Ireland and its battle with the new uh, tax policy that's being discussed by G20 finance ministers in Italy this weekend. And of course, we have have to talk about the Euros. Can't wait. Thanks, Vinny. Also ahead, Monocle's Andrew Muller talks about what we've learned this week. We learned that Russia plans to make French exporters of champagne label their bottles for the Russian market as sparkling wine, eliciting predictable French umbrage. We'll be in Cannes to get all the highlights, including our verdict on Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta, the story of a Renaissance nun who falls for another woman. C'est Jésus qui m'a fait ça. Les stigmates. Jésus-Christ a choisi notre bienheureuse sœur. Santa Benedetta. Benedetta. The story of non-sploitation coming up on Monocle on Saturday. Police in Haiti have released footage of foreign mercenaries accused of shooting President Jovenel Moïse earlier this week. 28 men, including retired Colombian soldiers, were arrested after a gun battle in the capital Port-au-Prince. It's still unclear who organised the attack and why. Large parts of Lebanon have been left without power after fuel ran out at the country's main power plants. It worsens a crisis that has seen people receive just two hours of electricity a day. Pharmacies have also gone on strike over medicine shortages caused by the failure to pay foreign importers. And a panel of scientists who advise the French government on health has warned that as many as 95% of people might need to be vaccinated in order to stop the spread of the Delta variant of COVID-19. It said that with cases rising, a fourth wave linked to the Delta variant could hit swiftly and said we can't get the epidemic under control unless 90 to 95% of people are vaccinated or infected. And those are the headlines on Monocle 24. So it's great to have you with us this Saturday here on Monocle 24. Uh, but joining me in the studio, Vincent McAvinney, reporter, Monocle 24 UK political commentator, regular voice behind the microphone. So good to see you, Vinny. Welcome Good morning. Back. Nice to see you. I think right. it's the first time we've been in the studio it together is since, in, pandemic. since the pandemic. Yeah. How exciting. It's lovely. There's a little thrill. That wonderful serendipity of actually talking to a real person yes. and coming up with ideas and having real papers that we can shuffle Real papers, about. Yeah. real papers, real stories. Are there any real stories in the, in the in the papers this morning? I've had a look around and there's there's not Plenty. one great big headline for everybody, is there? Apart it's, from it's coming home. Uh, well, yeah, well, yeah, unless you're reading the Italian papers and then it's not, yeah. it's going somewhere else. Um, but but go on, what, what have you no, found? Lots, what's your lots of good stories. I think we obviously always have to start with the pandemic, and uh, on Monday <laughs> we are expecting another update from 
British Prime Minister Boris Johnson about the so-called uh, Freedom Day, which is set to take place the following week on July the 19th. This has obviously been delayed a month. Uh, and with COVID, rises, uh, COVID cases rising now, we're getting, you know, up about 37,000 each day uh, with the new Delta variant. But the link does seem to be somewhat broken between new cases and hospitalizations and deaths, thankfully. But there are real concerns being voiced by the medical community about just the psychological impact of really the UK government saying, right, that's it, it's done, all restrictions are gone, including social distancing, including mask wearing, you know, that all becomes optional. But really, you know, everything else domestically just goes out the window. So it's back to work, back to the office, back to the commute. Um, and there are you know, there was a suggestion, and it's it's good in Alice and Guardian and the FT today that you know, Chris Whitty at one point the the the, uh, the um, England chief medical officer had said, you know, it's better to take off the brakes uh, in the summer rather than the autumn when hospitals are under greater pressure. But actually, what a lot of hospitals, a lot of GP practices are saying is that with people now mixing back in society and the backlog of cases of, of operations and new infections popping up because people are mixing again, hostels are actually at winter levels at the moment already. So we're not seeing that kind of pausing or calming of the summer that you normally get in hostels after the flu season time because you are getting people back and out, back out and about, having accidents, the backlog of all these operations, things that need to be done. So it is going to be quite an interesting experiment. There is this really odd feeling in the UK at the moment moment or here in London at least that we're there's this momentum building that July the 19th is freedom day or what have you I mean it's less than 10 days away this is this is a huge moment when everybody will get back to being normal but there is also the sense that people are being normal that no one is really social distancing anymore and people get the impression when you're in a place oh, do you mind if I wear my mask shall I wear my mask it all appears a bit optional and mm. okay I've been double jabbed let's have a bit of a leap of faith Yet when you read the newspapers and when you look at the news the, the, the news reports, the numbers are absolutely skyrocketing and the numbers of people going into hospital is going up. Mm. Not quite as much, obviously, as what happened in the past two waves. But also, among the community, people are being pinged an awful lot. They're getting yeah. lots of messages saying, you've been in contact with someone with coronavirus, you have to self-isolate. And there's this really strange feeling now that people are not doing track and trace and are not I, signing up because it's just too damned inconvenient getting in the way of a life that we've just already reclaimed before we've been told that we can. Yeah, I think you are really starting to see, you know, it's, it's you go on a tube now and about half the people are wearing masks and it is hard to get a, a distance for yourself. There was interesting polling, though, this week, and it's only 10% of people uh, actually back the, the, the full, leave, uh, full lifting of all restrictions on the 19th of July. Many people seem more happy with them. I mean, there was some remarkable polling uh, when you bed down into it about people saying that they wanted some things like face covering to stay even after the pandemic. And they wanted you to have to quarantine after foreign travel, even post-COVID for a period. So, you know, people have become very accustomed to, to these practices. But we are starting to see, particularly in cities like London, it is breaking down a bit. And of course, people who have gone and got the second vaccine are thinking, well, this is why I got it, so that life could go back to normal. But there is a suggestion that maybe we should be waiting until that second dose has kind of really rolled out to a higher percentage of people because the number of people actually going to get doses has slightly fallen off. Um, so they do kind of have that. And it's interesting that actually Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland are not really jumping on the bandwagon here with England. It is very much something that the Labour Party here is trying to jump onto, is sort of calling it, you know, Johnson's experiment. And they've dubbed the Delta variant the Johnson variant, trying to say that whatever happens now, if he messes this up at the end, it's down to him. Um, 
So it, it definitely is going to be interesting because part of it is obviously the psychological people. It is the summer. I think the impact if, if you know, have to have to say if England wins the Euros, you know, that, that has had a huge impact, I think, on, on the, with the scenes that we've seen in streets of celebration afterwards, I think, are making people think like, it's done, life is back to normal it now. It does very much feel like that at the moment, that people are just saying, I've been double jabbed, can I have a hug? Um been quite rightly sweating it, but people I've been speaking to, can I have a hug? Do you find as if people are trying to hug you a lot more than they used to? Uh, I, we I haven't tried to hug, but, but no, we didn't I hug did. before the pandemic. No. And now there's this funny thing that when you haven't seen someone for a long time, you feel compelled to be... I'm still kind of doing a bit of elbow to be elbow? polite. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but um, no, and, and just to come back to your point there, sorry, the one that I missed on the on the app. I mean, yeah. I've worked, uh, you know, working in a couple of newsrooms currently, and one of them... Um, I won't say which, uh, but it was the main national broadcaster, was telling people very quietly to deactivate the app because it was knocking out the staff left, right and centre. And even people who were getting pinged were like, you know, an editor and edit suite who actually was working alone um, with but doing Zoom to the reporter who was elsewhere got pinged when they hadn't actually been near anyone but it's just because geographically the app can't tell if you're in separate rooms it just tells you know or separate floors it just says oh it's in a proximity and takes everyone out so mm. i think businesses and we've heard this and it's not just you know not to be like bad media this this is going on with doctors and if you talk to people in the nhs they're saying that they're deactivating as well because they're obviously around people with covid all the time and the app is pinging them and the government's really tied itself in knots because they've actually had to admit that well it's not legally required that you have to do this it's it's the suggestion, it's the betterment of everyone, but there's the communications on this are breaking down. I think that mm. part of that, I have to say, I think I think Matt Hancock's affair, only two weeks ago now, he's managed to hide from the cameras until uh, this morning's papers. Um, I think that was the breaking point. I mm. think that that video was really, I mean, it was a horrendous video for other reasons, but I think that was the... Uh, <laughs> That was the breaking point. As someone said, two women, fancy Matt Hancock. Um, there's a brilliant um, article doing the rounds. Actually, it's an advert in France. I'm going to show it to you as you go along. It talks about the, va- it talks about the vaccine. And uh, I-, I wonder whether we can just take a quick look at what the papers are saying or whether there is actually any mention on the vaccine uptake and the fact that young people are getting COVID. They're getting the Delta variant. They're the ones that are falling ill now. They're the ones who want to travel. They're the ones who want to go nightclubbing. They're the ones who want to stay out past their bedtime. They're not the ones who are getting the vaccine yet. Or rather, they are being offered it, but there's still quite a lot of vaccine hesitancy, isn't there? And the, well, the French have yeah. made a really sexy campaign to try and make it actually something that you really want to do. You really want. I mean, that we weren't seeing this at the start. It's a funny one. I think we were seeing on the days where it was opening up to people 31, 30, 29, going to, you know, we were having a rolling day, you know, if it was, if it was, if you were that age, it was your day to get registered. And every day it was smashing the record, you know, and it was taking down the website. There were, there was one day where it was, you know, like I think a million people had signed up uh, in one day. So they had seen older generations getting it. I think partially, you know, I've got to say at the start of the rollout of the vaccine, they were very good at getting people like Dame Judi Dench and Sir Ian McKellen uh, and those kind of people to encourage the elderly. Uh, and they they got a real cross-section of actors, of sports people, of, of public figures to really encourage. And they were doing that through the age groups. But now they've got, like, south of 35. They're just not sure, you know, do a pop-up cl- They're probably all vaccinated already, but do a pop-up clinic in Love Island or, you know, get <laughs> Dua Lipa on Instagram Live getting her vaccine. You know, they should have... I feel like they've they've pulled back on that a little bit with the demographic that is probably most swayed by celebrities. But yeah, you know, that kind of campaign in France of, you know, 
get your life back is a good one. And I did see there was a good, uh, I don't know if you saw the Heineken advert that's gone viral where it's a whole bunch of um, uh, sort of pensioners who are uh, enjoying gap year life on a a kind of sunny beach and a sort of sundown rave party uh, in their Zimmer frames and everything. And it was, you know, Heineken, this one's for the vaccinated, uh, was the slogan. And it was showing that, you know, life does get better if you go ahead and get this. It does. I was sitting on a train yesterday and there was a bunch of about five or six young, you know, people people about 18, 19, like, I'm not sure if I want it. I think they've obviously seen everyone else get it and think, OK, we don't need it anymore. Right, let's move on to the uh, other articles in the paper. Something in the New York Times about... Um, we mentioned in the news the fact that... Uh, I think it's a G20 or G7 uh, meet. It's G20, G20 finance ministers. Yeah, they're meeting, yeah, it's a two-day um, meeting ahead of the meeting in Rome in October. Basically, telling all the other nations who have said that they won't sign up to the... Um, uh, to the sort of the tax hike, the global mm. tax hike, um, saying right, get your get your act together, hurry up. Um, the the country that many people are looking at as a spotlight as to how they're going to react is Ireland. Yeah, I mean, and Ireland is finding itself in quite bad company when it comes to this because you know 130 nations have signed up to this. You know, Ireland's biggest strategic partner is the United States. And there's a tricky issue here in that for decades now, you know, Ireland, by bringing down its its corporate tax rates, uh, has attracted particularly US businesses. And that has gone kind of as a incentive on the tax rates and reducing your burden. But there was also, and it has run into the EU with problems antagonising the EU with this because of, you know, the EU's demanded that the likes of Apple and Google should actually be paying more. Um, and so Ireland sits in this very awkward position where it's it's full you know, hearted member of the EU, as we've seen in the Brexit negotiations, but it's annoyed other EU states with this policy. At the same time, you've got these big American companies coming in because they see a benefit and there's been lobbying of those companies via the kind of Irish network in Washington, in America, to go in and support Ireland by putting this there. But now Joe Biden, who, you know, very much describes himself as an Irish-American president, is going around the world trying to get this new uh, baseline on, on corporate taxes around the world to stop the rampant avoidance that we've been seeing because many government, pretty much every government around the world now has a huge bill from the pandemic. And so part of addressing that and getting public finances on a more stable footing is once and for all sorting this out. So they're using this opportunity. But Ireland is still, you know, very resistant to this because it really is the foundation of what is called, you know, the Celtic tiger economy, uh, that the low corporate tax rate of 12.5%. It does effectively, you know, some would say create a tax haven in the European Union. It's an English speaking country. It's very attractive for and you have what's called Silicon Docks in central Dublin. So it is very attractive for all these companies. But now is Ireland, you know, going to be kind of make itself a slight pariah state if it keeps this rate up whilst the vast majority of countries agree to this rate um, will there be repercussions for Ireland both within the EU but also will the US, I mean it's it's so so tricky because they're US companies most of these but Joe Biden is the one leading this charge Vincent McAvinney, stay with us Uh, we'll be back with you in a little while but first let's hear uh, Andrew Muller, he's giving us our weekly update as to any of the stories that Vincent and I might have missed, here's what we learned We learned this week another lesson in the perplexing irony that those likeliest to bang on and on and on and on about freedom of speech are the least likely to understand how freedom of speech actually works. 
We learned that increasingly former US President Benito Cartman intends to lead a class action lawsuit against Facebook, Twitter and Google and the CEOs thereof over their reluctance to continue disseminating his audaciously punctuated contributions to the discourse. We're demanding an end to the shadow banning, a stop to the silencing and a stop to the blacklisting, banishing, and canceling that you know so well. We learned, therefore, that Donald Trump is yet to learn that a private space, such as a social media platform, is perfectly entitled to impose standards of behavior and to eject customers who repeatedly, and despite warnings, breach them. We learned that, by Trump's logic, it would amount to shadow banning, silencing, blacklisting, banishing, or canceling. If his bouncers threw someone out of Mar-a-Lago for strutting around the swimming pool with a megaphone chanting, God, just take the L, you big weirdo. But we learned inevitably that what Trump says this obviously ridiculous lawsuit is about is not what this obviously ridiculous lawsuit is about. As the press conference announcing this obviously ridiculous lawsuit elaborated, there's a website called takeonbigtech.com at which, well, guess what? It's time to put America first once again. What you can't hear there is the big red button with donate written on it. <coughs> Fools and their money, and so forth. Elsewhere, we learned that Russia continues to be the geostrategic equivalent of the kid who rings the doorbell, then runs away giggling. Go on, you know you want to. <laughs> the latest victim of Russia's belligerent whimsy is France. Where's that file of silly French accordion music? We learned that Russia plans to make French exporters of champagne label their bottles for the Russian market as sparkling wine, eliciting predictable French umbrage. You know what? We worked on that all morning. Let's have it again. Well, quite. We learned that Russia seems to be trying to promote or protect its own local ersatz bubbly, known as Champagne Square, and that this branding, in that weird alphabet they use over there, is now off-limits to French fizzmongers, who can say champagne on the front of the bottle, but have to go with sparkling wine on the back, and not in Cyrillic or something, but we'll confess to having zoned out on the technicality somewhat because we don't care. But we learned that some people do, and very much so. The issue very nearly brought our guests on Tuesdays daily to fisticuffs and chair hurling, as Michael Binion gamely attempted to make Russia's case to Florence Biedemann. In my day, when I lived in 
the Soviet Union, you got Sovietsko Champanskoy, and that's what it was called, and it was delicious, and I really loved it. Are you, uh, are you sure about that? I drank gallons of it. <laughs> we could buy French champagne in the diplomatic shops, and I wouldn't touch it, because I didn't Ooh. like it. <laughs> I, I, but it is the real stuff. Let me remind you <laughs> that uh, I, I should alert the listeners British to the fact that Florence, the Florence second, has her arms folded. Uh, the British are the second country buying more champagne, That's like right. after the US. That's right. But we learned that Russia appears not to understand that trolling is only real trolling if it comes from the troll peninsula in the Faroe Islands. Otherwise, it's just being a massive pain in the neck. We will now be requiring some music honouring the great nation of Denmark. Come on, nobody likes a gloater. Also, the last time Sterling dived like that, it was something to do with George Soros. Thank you. Do we not have some silly Danish music as well? There it is. For we learned that the always commendably practical people of Denmark had had the foresight to construct a preemptive consolation prize in advance of their narrow failure to be the team which would lose 3-0 to Italy in this Sunday's final of the European Football Championship. Should the freshly dehorned Vikings wish to console themselves once back home with a trip to the seaside at Blochus, they can marvel at what is, we learned, the world's largest ever sandcastle, made up of nearly 5,000 tons of beach and standing more than 20 metres tall. So we also learned that someone in Denmark owns the world's biggest bucket. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you, Andrew. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday with me, Emma Nelson. Let's uh, indulge in some outdoor dining now with Henry Rees Sheridan for this week's letter from New York City. I place my foot on the windowsill and brace myself. I've already opened the sliding window and its anti-bug screen. I heave myself up so I'm sitting on the windowsill and contort myself into a fetal position so I can fit inside the window frame. I sit there for a moment with one leg inside my apartment and one dangling out. I look over the edge and tighten my core. I twizzle on my bottom and, after a moment's hesitation, launch myself into the ether. Don't worry, I haven't decided to end it all, yet. But this is the only way I can get to the tiny sliver of roof we have access to from our apartment. It's not much to look at, but any and all roof access is a cherished commodity in New York City, and so I'm making the most of what I've got. I've decked out the tiny scrap of roof with a folding table and chairs from the Swedish design firm IKEA. As many days a week as the weather permits, I eat my lunch al fresco on the balcony. On these occasions, I like to willfully slip into a waking dream and vividly hallucinate that I'm on a balcony in a scenic Italian city. (laughs) 
To magnify my delusion, I prepare recipes exclusively from the YouTube cooking channel of an elderly Italian lady. The channel is called La Cucina di Domenica. Mezzo chilo di zucchine, olio, aglio, un po' d'acqua. Andiamo con il procedimento, è ovviamente la pasta. At the end of many of her videos, the host seemingly issues a call that I presume is alerting other members of her household to the fact that dinner is ready. Uewe, è pronto, venite! Ci vuole ancora tempo? Dai che si freddano! I don't speak a word of Italian, but as part of my lunchtime ritual, I have taken to parroting the sounds she makes, like one of those anorak freaks who mimic birdsong by ear. Oh, oui, oui, è pronto, è nita! I shout as I sprinkle pre-grated parmesan on my pasta. I like to shout this whether the woman I live with is in my apartment or not. It all contributes to the sense of ceremony. After carrying my lunch out of the window, no mean feat, and setting it on my rooftop table, I crank up the Italia vibes even louder by playing the Raging Bull soundtrack out of my laptop while it's balanced on the windowsill. I pause for a moment and consider the twists and turns my life has taken. For the first 18 years of it, I subsisted almost entirely on rubber chicken in a curry sauce, ladled onto a mound of half rice, half chips in a school gymnasium in South Wales. Now I'm a gourmand living la dolce vita. I look down at the road beneath me. To my left, a man shouts in Polish at a mongrel on the end of his leash. To my right, a juvenile delinquent gobs onto the pavement beneath some scaffolding. Directly in front of me, a man driving a Ford shouts at a group of construction workers for obstructing a valuable parking space with a pile of two-by-fours. I'm able to convince myself that this is probably not dissimilar to the view from most balconies in Italy at any given point during the day. Probably the best thing about our roof is that it's completely private. Due to an architectural quirk, it's impossible to gain access to it from any other apartment. Many times I've emerged onto a broad rooftop at a friend's party, only to find, for example, a Texan transplant sitting in a children's paddling pool filled with ice water, sucking on a flexible straw trailing from a beer can cradled in a drinks holder affixed to a novelty hard hat he's wearing that has a red cross stenciled on it, and beneath that, the words, thirst aid. In that instance, the Texan looked no more pleased to see us than we were to see him, and I don't blame him. No one here wants to share a roof. Last 4th of July, I was on a friend's roof, taking in a breathtaking panorama of fireworks. They were going off all around, as far as the eye could see. At some point, we heard a banging beneath our feet, distinct from the cracks and pops overhead. We looked over to see the cover of the roof hatch serving the building next to ours, bouncing up and down. The neighbours were trying to get onto the roof to enjoy the fireworks alongside us. 
but they were struggling to lift the cover off of their roof hatch. I looked at my friend. Instinctively, we knew the correct course of action to take. Moving in perfect synchronicity, we each picked up a handle of the heavy drinks cooler full of beer and ice water that we had hauled up to the roof earlier. We carried it to the neighbor's roof hatch and, wordlessly, placed it over the cover. They wouldn't be sharing our view tonight. Their desperate banging carried on for a few more minutes, then their struggle ceased. The fireworks continued overhead, each flash illuminating the smoke trails around it in the night sky. And my thanks to Henry Reese Sheridan reporting there from New York City. I'm delighted to say with the time at 9.28 here in London, 10.28 in France, we can go to Cannes. And I'm joined by Tim Roby, film critic from the Daily Telegraph. Good morning, Tim. How is the croisette this morning? Morning. It's all right. I have yet to venture onto the croisette today, but it looks lovely out there. You uh, do, and I've been, you I, I've do been have up the and best, down it for the last three days. I bet you have. You do have the best out of office I've ever seen on an email. When you send, send you an email, and you're like, I'm in Cannes. Yeah, sorry. I'm really sorry. It's really hard sorry. not to sound smug about it, but yeah, <laughs> there it is. I mean, is there, is there the temptation to be ridiculously smug about it? Because frankly, you do deserve it. You haven't been allowed to do any of this. And now Cannes is back and it looks as if it's back in, in you know, back properly. It's it's back properly. Yep, there are challenges, as I mentioned earlier and last time. Um, we've got to, you know, obviously mask wearing and testing, all these sort of things, but it's so worth it because some really good films have already surfaced. And, yeah, I'm having a great time. And just, like, with back cinema is back. It's just something to be celebrated. And we'll come to the films in a moment, but is which is more fun, the, the, the fact that you are able to see other human beings or the fact that you're able to get back into, into, into an enormous um, cinema, cinema and, and enjoy yeah. things? Absolutely both of those things and, you know, staying out and having fun as well. But also I, I just am loving the sunshine. <laughs> uh, that's, that's something else for me because we have been lacking that too in Britain. So um, just having, you know, 30 degree sun to step out into every day, even the 10 minutes when you walk to a film, you can kind of bask in that or stand in the queue. And I do enjoy that too. The joy of standing in a queue in the sun before you go into yeah. a cold, dark room to watch a film. Uh, all right, let's talk about films, although I do I'm deeply interested in finding out how the rest of Cannes is going as well. Uh, we have to start off with the, what's being described as a non-sploitation film, Benedetta. Yes. So, right. Tell, uh, talk Benedetta. us through this one, Tim. Absolutely. Benedetta is a real-life figure. This is a 17th-century nun who uh, became an abbess at a, a convent in Tuscany, but then had an affair with one of her sisters, uh, and so was eventually uh, de uh, deprived of her position and put in prison. So, this is a famous lesbian nun from history. And who have they? Who, who has been given the, the the film? Paul Verhoeven, director of Showgirls, director of Basic Instinct, a man who is not shy about kind of making sex fairly explicit and sometimes quite tawdry on screen. Uh, this film is a, a riot, though. It's very funny. It's very silly and has almost a kind of carry on up the convent quality at times. Um, Virginie Efira plays Benedetta and, uh, you know, before long in the film, there is some very energetic sex going on uh, with the other sister who they bring into the fold. Charlotte Rampling plays the kind of mother superior character, casting a disapproving eye over all of this through a peephole. Uh, and if I'm making it sound like some, something out of, you know, the 70s, like sort of Caligula or something, some sort of really mad sex romp, that is exactly what it is. And that is what Paul Verhoeven has done here. Uh, it's sort of 
weird and crazy that it's in competition in Cannes alongside a lot of very earnest, serious, uh, you know, and, 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 and very kind of profound pieces of work. It is not any of those things, but I did have a really good time with it. It's funny you you are on the uh, the we love Benedetta's side of the of the of the reviewers. Lots of people have said this is absolutely terrible. Oh, some people absolutely hate it. I, I think you have to go in with a sense of humour, uh, and that is the, the thing. Paul Verhoeven is is he's a cheeky provocateur. Uh, he wants to sort of ruffle feathers. Uh, he's impudent. He's outrageous. Uh, and this one does all of these things. I, don't, I by no means think it is great art at all. And in fact, I think his last film here, L, with this Velvet Pair, was much closer to that, uh, despite sort of, sort of teetering on the edge of trash as well. That was a kind of rape thriller in which she sort of decides how to respond to the fact that she's been raped. Uh, and she got her, an Oscar nomination for that role, and deservedly so. She was amazing in it. Um, I do think his, his actors in, in this do a really good job. Um, Virginia Fira, who's an excellent French actress, um, is yeah, has, has a lot um, to think about in this part. There's a lot of you know, is is Benedetta uh, dissembling? Is she um, is she for real? Uh, how much of this is she faking? She has all these visions. She thinks that she's close to Jesus, uh, and again, there's some quite sort of raunchy stuff with her clambering up on top of Christ on the cross. And all this thing, all this stuff. Um, Charlotte Ramping, though, I think is weirdly moving in her role too. I think there's a lot to be said for the film, but I do think you have to sort of go in knowing you're going to get a lot of Verhoeven. And well, Paul Verhoeven now is, is what? How old? I mean, he's 82. Um, yeah, and when you start to place that in context, um, a, a film that, the likes of which you've just described, made by an 82-year-old whose who's back catalogue includes Basic Instinct and Showgirls, kind of puts a slightly different perspective on it, doesn't it? It does a bit, uh, and I think he's already been challenged about, you know, the, the kind of the, the nature of the sex scenes and so on, because I don't think in America you would be able to do those scenes without, you know, intimacy coordinators and all of that. He has talked about this, and he sort of finds all of that very baffling, because in Europe you don't have so many issues, certainly not in Holland or France. Uh, he says that the actresses were more than up for doing everything and uh, really wants to kind of plunge themselves into it. So we've not got one of those situations like we had in uh, Blue is the Warmest Colour, if you remember, where the, the two actresses were really unhappy with um, the, the, the kind of level of exploitation they felt they suffered on set. None of that is going on here. And Verhoeven also did hire himself a female cinematographer to be the sort of one, the one to capture all of this on film. Uh, so he, I guess you could sort of say he's slightly hiding behind her. Uh, um, and he is a randy old 82-year-old who has made a film about lesbian nuns. There's no way around that, but it's quite a fun one. Thank you so much for that. Um, finally, let's talk about Mothering Sunday. Yeah, I'm just writing about this as we speak, and I really like this film. Uh, this showed last night, um, and I feel really happy for the director, who's a French director called Eva Husson, um, because she was really beaten up here the last time she was in Cannes. She made a film called Girls of the Sun, which is a war movie, which was put into competition at the last minute and was absolutely savaged by most critics. And I think a little bit unfairly and in a slightly sexist way. Um, so she's really come back with a vengeance in, in, uh, with a much better project. Uh, Mothering Sunday is based on this Graham Swift novel from 2016. It's set on Mother's Day in 1924 in the Oxford countryside. And it is about the fallen of the First World War, really. It's about the, the, the dead men and the dead boys uh, and what they left behind. Um, the only surviving um, brother in, in one of these families is played by Josh O'Connor, 
Um, and he is getting ready to marry a woman who was in fact uh, engaged to one of his now dead brothers. Um, their, their wedding is coming up. There are big plans for the day, it's Mother's Day. But we, meanwhile, we also have another family and this is um, uh, Colin Firth and Olivia Coleman playing a, a couple called the Nivens who have lost all of their children in the war. Uh, and they're sort of rattling around in their big estate. Uh, and all they've got is a plan for lunch. And Olivia Coleman, whose role is kind of tiny, in the book she's barely even mentioned. Uh, and she doesn't speak very much. She just gazes off into the distance, um, thinking about her lost sons. Um, and the story is really about this affair that uh, Josh O'Connor's character is having with the maid who works for the Nivens, who's played by Odessa Young. They're having a clandestine affair which they managed to get, get managing to get away with, you know, phone calls, pretending they're wrong numbers and so on. No one knows about this. Uh, and so the film is sort of, it's largely spent with them kind of languishing in and out of bed as he gets later and later to turn up for this lunch he's meant to go to. Um, and it's a very nicely observed piece. It's got a really fantastic script by Alice Birch, who wrote Lady Macbeth. Uh, it looks great. Sandy Powell did the costumes. Uh, these kind of 20s um, aristocratic um, garbs. There's the, the character of the fiance played by Emma Darcy is absolutely ferocious. She looks like a kind of flapper, sort of jaded flapper. Uh, and there's some really great photography in this too. I, I think this film is very good. It doesn't quite land the very end for me. Uh, there's a role for Glenda Jackson, which I didn't think quite panned out. Um, so I've, I've got slight reservations about it, but I do think it's really good. And I think people who are fans of atonement will get a lot out of this film. Tim Roby in Cannes. Go and enjoy the sunshine. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Saturday. A uh, quick final word from Vincent. Uh, Vinny, what you, and one last um, good story that you found in the papers or fun story. I mean... The papers are just dominated by the Euros, aren't they? Yeah. The, the repercussions <laughs> on the English psyche, win or lose, will be absolutely massive because everything in the past couple of years, whether it be the pandemic, whether it be Brexit, is really being distilled into the kind of national mood as we go into this game. Um, there is a bit of crying foul from the Italian media and also we've had seen the Spanish media that's picked up as well about how there's a bit of a, you know, UEFA shouldn't have let the, the finals be in the UK because we let... You know, the Spanish pundit saying because we left the EU and it's been rigged to help England uh, win. You know, so we'll see. There was a bit of uh, you know cause for alarm it has been throughout this tournament with England booing rivals' uh, national anthems, which is just really ugly and stupid. And also there was that laser pen incident as well in the Denmark game uh, against the goalie on Wednesday. So it is a bit of a test for the UK to show that it is a grown-up, mature country. But we will see what happens tomorrow night. Yep. Okay. We'll we'll look for to it. Vincent McAvinney, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. My thanks to all my guests as well and to our studio engineer Nora Hole. I'm Emma Nelson-Monocle on Saturday is back next week but for now have a good weekend. Goodbye. <laughs>